All right, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, I, I know we tested this earlier. Can y'all can y'all turn this on back there for me real quick? There we whoa, it's on now. I promise you. Yeah. All right. My name is David Wheeler. I, I have the privilege of of teaching these students here at Liberty University. I've had about about almost twenty thousand students in the last ten years. I've got fifteen hundred of them right now. Today, I want to talk to you about family. Uh, and this afternoon, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about uh, marriage and, and really talk about that whole idea and concept of that and, and just, just give you some, some kind of um, just, just things you can latch on to and in, in, in how to strengthen your marriage and what does that look like and what's, what is God's marriage supposed to be for us. If you want to open your Bibles up to Proverbs chapter 22, Proverbs chapter 22. And it's verse 6, Proverbs 22. We're going to look at verse 6 this morning. And here's what it simply says. It says, teach a youth about the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, you've probably heard that said, that he raised up a child the way they should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. The, the word there for child actually is a youth. It means a preteen up to an older teen is what it really means. Either way, it, it carries basically the same meaning. And, and I want to say something to you this morning that I think is, is very true. If you want to change our nation, we've got to change the church. You know, guys, that's not going to happen in D.C. I mean, I, I know all, we all love to watch all of these these debates and all this kind of stuff happen and all this kind of things. But let me say this to you. Guys, our nation is not going to be changed in Washington. Our nation will be changed when the church is changed. How do you change the church? You change the church when you change the home. How do you change the home? You change the home when you connect the family to God. It's what we have to do. Now, I, I, I will say this to you. Satan is a deceiver and a liar. He is destroying our nation, and he knows exactly how to do it. And he's done it by destroying the family, by scattering us in a thousand different directions. And rather than us being focused on what it is that God wants. I want you to think about this for a moment. Only 12% of American families ever pray together. This comes from family, uh, uh, a book called uh, Family to Family. And they, they, these statistics are actually a little bit older. But only 12% of American families pray together. Get this. Guys, only one-third of American families, this would have been back in the 1990s, only one-third of American families then, I, I, it's much less now, I'm sure, have one meal together every week. Think about this. The average father spends less than eight to ten minutes a day with his children, and that includes meal times and TV time. And if you want to know why the divorce rate's so high, according to the studies, the average family, the average husband and wife spend less than four minutes a day together of uninterrupted time. Guys, the family, God created the family before he created the church. God meant the family to be the center focus and core of what he would do. And what's happened is, and Satan knows that, so he has attacked the family in so many different ways. And today, maybe you're here and you're a single mom or single dad. This is for you. Maybe you're just single and you're praying that one day you will have that family. This is for you too. Don't cut this out. This is for all of us here today. We need to understand the importance of what the family is really about. 
First of all, I want us to look at the first part of the passage. I want us to see what I call the imperative of the home and the family. It simply says in verse 6, teach a youth. Teach a youth. In, in the script, it may also say in your Bible to raise up. It's the same phrase. It's an imperative. It says to us, this is what you are supposed to do. It has three basic meanings to it. Number one, it means to put something sweet in the mouth of your children. To put something sweet in the mouth of your children. But that, and all through scripture, it tells us that we're not to provoke our children to wrath. It says we're supposed to teach them. We're supposed to guide them. We're supposed to love them and care for them. That doesn't mean that we let them do anything they want to do, but it does mean that we need to raise them in a way that is sweet. Guys, I have children. I have students every semester. I've had, like I said, almost 20,000 18, 19-year-old students. I can't tell you how many of them come to me every semester. My wife will come up on stage, and I'll give her a kiss, or my kids will come up there, and I'll give them a hug. had a girl come up to me a while back. She said, Mr. Wheeler, she said, you, you, you don't understand. She said, I have never had my dad ever tell me that he loved me. All my father's ever done is run around with other women. She said, about a year ago, she said, I thought I would replace my dad with another man. He took my purity and left. I hear that, guys. I've heard that hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. We need to understand the importance of the family. It means to put something sweet in their mouths. We as parents are supposed to, to, yes, to discipline, but at the same time to create this atmosphere where there is community and there's protection and there's love and there's compassion and all those things in the family. It also means this. It means to build an altar. In fact, this phrase was taken from the phrase in, a phrase in reference to the highest point of Jewish society, which was the temple. And what it means simply is this. It means we're to build an altar, that everything we do in our families, everything we do in our homes, as it were, is to be laid out on the altar before God and to be found acceptable in his sight. It also means this. It means to dedicate, to dedicate the process of dedicating a building, the process of dedicating a ministry, the process of dedicating anything. In those days, when they would dedicate that what they would do, that process, they would do that when they were preparing the temple before they would have lay down the offering before God. So what does it mean? It simply means this. It means in those days what they would do is they go into the temple and they, want to, they wanted to purify the temple. So they would take everything out and they would wash the lampstands and they would wash the incense burners. They would, they would wash the ceilings and the walls and everything. And what they were doing is symbolically dedicating the temple so that when the offering was laid down and the presence of God showed up, the temple was ready, symbolically purified to receive the presence of God. Look at me. Our homes are to be pure places where God is welcome. That's where they're supposed to be. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. How many of you this weekend have already got on Netflix or maybe you just watched regular TV and in in Here's what we do. We, we, we've come to the place that we do not, we're not shameful of anything anymore. We're not. Nothing is shameful anymore. 
Think about this. We, we, we sit and watch movies and listen to the F word used all over again, all over, all the time. And th- words that, that we would never allow to be used in our home. But here's what we've done. We have, we have literally, guys, sacrificed our families on the altar of entertainment. We have. The Bible says there's a time when we will start to say what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. And we've come to that place where we've done that in our homes. Come on, listen to me. It's one thing for Satan to sneak in a crack in the window or a back door that we leave open in our homes. It's another thing altogether for us to open the front door wide and invite him to come right on in and sit right down and then pay him for the privilege of being there. That's what we've done. We want to know what's wrong with our society. We we don't have a conscience anymore. We don't don't know what's right and wrong. We've compromised so long. We don't go and refer back to the word, to the Bible, and what it says. And what he says is, teach, dedicate, make your homes a holy place where God is welcome. At any moment, at any time, 24 hours a day. First of all, there's the imperative. Secondly, there's the initiation. Look what it says. It says raise up or, or teach a youth or, or it says a child, a preteen up, up through their teens. It doesn't matter. What he's saying here is this. It starts when your children are children. Here's what we do, Fathers. We work like crazy when our kids are younger and when they're coming up. And finally, you know, we get to a place in our life when we're in our 40s and where we're, we're kind of we're a little bit more comfortable. You know, maybe we have the, the, the house that we wanted. Maybe we have, a, we have the bank account we want. Maybe we have the, the, the car, all the kind of stuff that we want, the truck that we want, all this kind of thing. We, we, we've got whatever it might be. And, and so we feel fairly comfortable. And then one day, what happens is, you're sitting in your living room, and your 16-year-old daughter walks across in front of you. And you say, honey, sweetheart, come here, sit down. Let's talk for a few minutes. And she says, dad, I was looking for you anyway. That's great, sweetheart. What do you want? She says, dad, what I really need is, can I borrow the car and have 20 bucks, please? And we go, all you do is think I'm Santa Claus. All you do is, well, guys, you know why our kids are doing that? Because that's all we've ever done. Studies have revealed for the last 20 years that that husbands and wives spend more time away from their children, paying other people to pour their values into their kids than at any time in history. And here's what we do. We think because we think it's all about quality, not quantity. Let me say this to you. There is no such thing as quality without quantity. You don't have that. And so what do we do? We feel guilty because we spend so much time away from our kids. So we buy them everything. We get them an iPhone when they're four years old. I'm serious. I see this with kids all the time. And then we wonder why it is they're so disconnected. You know, recent studies have shown that the reason why our kids have no empathy is because we, they've, they've been in a technological world for so long. They can't live in the real world because we've let everyone else raise our kids. 
We get them iPads. We, we, we sit them in front of a TV because we're so worn out and tired from working that we don't want to have to spend time with them. So we let everything else entertain them. And then we wonder why they act the way they do. Come on, think about this. How many times have you seen this, Jeff? You're, you're back there in the nursery and there's some parent talking to you about saying, I don't know why my boy keeps kicking and karate chopping everybody. I don't know where he gets that from. And then you look at the kid and he's got a Power Ranger shirt on, Power Ranger shorts on, Power Ranger hat on, underwear and t-shirt, everything on. You're going, duh. <laughs> we wonder why. Listen, a few, several years ago, I was living in Texas, and I, I, I saw a study that was done. Now, this is back in the, the, the 1980s, early 90s, and they asked the question of teenagers, what one thing would you rather have from your mom and dad more than anything else? As I remember, you know, I mean, there were some who wanted a trip to Tahiti and all that kind of stuff, you know, and everything, there, there, there is that. But like three quarters of those young people, those teenagers who responded, said what they really wanted from their mom and dad was their undivided attention. I want you to think about this for a moment. I thought, you know, that's probably not true anymore. Come on, these young people, they've grown up in a technological society. They've probably changed. It's a new generation, all this kind of stuff. Until I was watching one of those like Good Morning America shows a few years ago. And they had like 10 or 15 different teenagers up on stage. And they were asking them questions. I don't know if someone had written a book or what had happened. I just remember what, what, what occurred during the, during the, when they interviewed them. They were asking them questions about you know, their generation. How do we understand your generation? What do you really want? What's this? At the very end of it, the lady who was leading the, 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 the uh, uh, interview did an amazing thing. She stopped for a moment. She says, look, you got millions of people watching you. You got your parents and grandparents, everybody out in the crowd. She said, we got about a minute left. Tell me, what one thing are we really missing with your generation? And one young man over on this side, he kind of stood up and says, well, we were kind of talking about that backstage. Do you mind if I answer it, guys? Sure, go ahead. He stepped up, and this is what he said. He says, well, if you really want to know, he says, we're tired of you trying to buy us off. We don't want your stuff anymore. We want you. We want grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, to clear their calendar, get off their phones, and treat us like we matter. We want to learn from you. We want to talk to you. Why do you think these kids spend so much time with their friends? Because we as parents have disconnected. We have no family structure anymore. I want you, they say. We want you. And we stop here for a moment and talk to the, the grandparents here for a moment too as well. I'm going to give you just a couple of things here and just, just one thing to think about. You know, there's nowhere in Scripture it talks about retirement. You cannot influence your grandchildren 
if you're in Florida six months of the year. Well, we earn that right. Yeah, but your grandchildren are more important. I'm just saying, we've created a society to where it's all about our self-comfort, not about investing in them. And I get those kids every semester, guys. I get them. I get their parents calling me, complaining why they flunked. You got to try to flunk my class. You really do. But it's the truth. I, I, I get it. Because we have, we have a skewed view of what we're supposed to be as parents and grandparents. Come on, think about this. I'm so tired. The third point of this is the instruction of the home and the family. Look what he says. He says, raise up a youth in the way they should go. It doesn't say would go. Come on. You see, there's a lot of psychobabble out there that tells us that if you discipline your kids too much at an early age, they'll never be able to learn to make their own decisions when they get older. Listen to me. I want to say this as straightforward as I can. That is the biggest bunch of hockey I've ever heard. Come on. If, think about it. Those people writing those books, most of them don't have kids. They're writing these books on marriage. They've been married five times. Really, that's what we want. If you want a book to raise your kids on, right here's the book you need to raise your kids on. I'm telling you right now, we got too many parents that want to be their child's friend. It's the truth. Well, I want them to like me. They're not supposed to like you. They're not supposed to. Come on. If I, had a, if I had a nickel for every time my daughters have stomped off of me and go, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. They only hate you till dinner time. <laughs> they don't hate you. They are manipulating you. And parents and grandparents are buying it all the time. It's the truth. Go to Walmart this afternoon. Look at them. You'll go, go to hang in the toy section for a few minutes. You'll always have these parents and grandparents around there. And some kids screaming. And they're, they're, they're negotiating with them. They're going, hey, come on, if you get up in the buggy, we'll give you this toy this time. And next time we'll buy you this toy. Please get up in the buggy. And they're negotiating with a terrorist. <laughs> you don't negotiate with a four-year-old. Who's the parent? Who's the child there? It's the truth. My dad would have never, you know what my dad would have said? He said, son, it'd be easier for your mother not to start over and put up with this nonsense. Now you get your hiney up here in his buggy. That would have been it. We had too many parents that want to be their friends. It's the truth. They want to be liked. You can't make the hard decisions. Well, but they've already been through so much. No, they're going to go through more if you don't teach them. I'm serious. I, at my dad's funeral, my brother shared this, this funny story. He was 18 years old, came home from college, his first week of college. He's sitting across the table from my dad at breakfast that morning, or like his first month of college, something like that. And he looks at my dad, and he says to him, my dad no was an old country boy from East Tennessee. He passed away about 12 years ago. And he, and he says to my dad, he says, he says, Dad, now that I'm a man, that was his first misstep right there, okay? Now that I'm a man, 
don't you think it's time that you and I build a friendship? I'm serious. This is what my father said. He said, son, where are your feet? He said, well, they're on the floor. He said, whose floor is it? He said, what's yours, dad? He said, son, where are your legs? Well, they're under the table. He said, whose table is that? It's yours, dad. He said, son, that food there, where'd you get it out? Well, over there in the kitchen. Whose kitchen is that? It's yours, dad. So, son, when you drove in last night, whose car were you in? Where, yours, Dad. Who pays the insurance for that car? You do, Dad. Who pays for the gas? You do, Dad. Who keeps you in school? You do, Dad. He says, son, don't sound like we're going to have a friendship. We're going to have a dictatorship. <laughs> Listen to me. If you do not instruct them now, you will regret it later. It's the truth. If you don't do it now... I walked in church one Sunday. There was a lady sitting about right here. Her name was Marcy. I'll never forget this. And, and Jeff, she, she was crying. And I walked up to her and I said to her, I said, Marcy, what is wrong? She said, oh, Brother David, it's so horrible. I said, what's wrong? She said, my girls wouldn't get out of bed and come to church this morning. I said, really? I said, how old are your girls? Eight and ten. <laughs> I said, Marcy, who's the parent? Who's the child here? She looked at me. She said, what do you mean? I said, Marcy, I'll get you a tape of the morning service. You go home right now. You open the door of your girls' rooms. You pull their cover back. You tell them they have five minutes to get ready. If they're not ready in five minutes, you bring them here in their pajamas and set them on the back row, okay? I promise you next week they'll get up and get ready. I guarantee, I, I know what would happen in a Wheeler household. Every Sunday morning, my father would come in and wake us up. He'd say, son, you got 30 minutes to get ready. i go, I can just imagine one of those mornings going, you know, Dad, I'm really tired today. I was up late watching Gunsmoke last night, you know. I, I tell you what, Dad. You and mom have a good time. Tell my Sunday school teacher, I'll see her tonight. My dad would say, boy, you got 28 minutes left. <laughs> if I wasn't ready in those 28 minutes, my dad would have come in there, pulled me out of that bed, marched me downstairs, put me in the car, drove me to church, sat me on the front row of my Batman pajamas and made me take up the offering, okay? Because <laughs> there was never any question in my home who the parent and who the child was. Now, I want to speak to the grandparents again here. I'm going to get you really upset here, okay? I hope to be a grandparent here sometime soon if my daughter would just get married. <laughs> that guy would just get on the love boat and ask her, okay? If you have any suggestions, I'm open for it, okay? I've offered to pay for half the ring, everything else, okay? It doesn't, doesn't work. Now, here's the deal. Grandma and Grandpa, my youngest has mild cerebral palsy. These guys up here know Kara. She's an amazing kid. But I can remember when she was three or four years old, she, she, she had just learned to walk. Everybody in the family felt sorry for her. But Kara's smart. She'd go back home and she'd sit with my dad. My dad adored Kara. And she'd sit with him and she'd say, Grandpa, if I give you a hug, will you give me $5? And, and she would give him a hug and a kiss. And the next day, she said, if I give you two hugs, will you double it? And we'd be driving home back to wherever we were living at that time. And she'd be going 20, 40, 60, 80. 
And we go, where'd you get that money from? Grandpa gave it to me. I hugged him every day. It's so cool. We had to have a meeting with grandparents. Here's what we told them. We said, you either start disciplining our children the same way you disciplined us, or you're going to get supervised visitation. It's, that's it, okay? See, your parents go, oh, listen to me. We all want to raise godly children. Is that true? Amen? Then we've all got to be on the same team. We cannot present a, another path that's a path of least resistance. We have to be on the same team. We have to instruct. Finally, what does it say? It says, uh, raise them up in the way they should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I'm going I'm to say this to you. That's not written necessarily as a promise. But I can promise you this. If you do not instruct them, because what this was written for is, was the idea in the background that when teenagers are there, there's just something in a teenager's mind that just don't click and, and, and they make stupid, you know, decisions sometimes. Come on, I've, I've said this over and over again. If we wanted to win the war in Afghanistan, all we had to do is, is line up about 28th grade girls and march them across because that's the meanest thing on the face of the earth. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> they would eat flesh of anything that's in front of them. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Come on, all the 8th grade girls going, what do you mean by that? You know exactly what I mean. I raise girls. I know. I've swam in that estrogen ocean long enough to understand exactly what that means. Okay? I understand that. So, but it's not a promise. But what it does say is this. If we do not instruct, you can be promised they will go in the wrong direction. But what does he say? I think what's important here is the last part of this are the impressions we leave on our children in our home. Listen, I can remember... As a seven, eight, uh, seven-year-old, eight-year-old boy, that my father, my mom, almost died of kidney failure. And my mom and my dad, my dad took care of my mom like she was a queen. I didn't realize that God was preparing me for a day that I would have a very ill wife. My wife is in the third week, just finished her third week of a series of a chemo derivative called Rituxin because of a disease she has called Wegener's. For 25 years, we've been dealing with this. My youngest daughter was born in a bedpan. Maybe sometime I'll come back and tell you the whole story of it. We know. My dad was preparing me. Those impressions he made upon me of, of how to love my wife because how he loved my mom. My grandfather, watching him in the, his 80s, get my grandmother out of the car and walk and hold hands with her. Those impressions don't go away. It was never the stuff my mom and dad bought me that mattered. Come on. I was, I was five years old when I got my first tiger seat bike. You remember those guys? Yeah. I wish I still had. It's probably worth a lot of money now. I remember when I was 10, I couldn't wait to get a chopper bike, you know. And I got one. I couldn't believe it, you know. And that motorcycle my dad helped me get when I was in high school, the one I, that dirt bike, you know. I don't know where all those things are. That lime green three-piece suede laser suit I had in the ninth grade. You remember those guys? Yeah. You'd unbutton your shirt like you had something there to show, right? You know what I'm talking about? 
wore these stack shoes. Every time I go into Old Navy, I think, why didn't I hold on to them? I can sell them now. You know what I mean? It's retro stuff, you know. And I remember in high school, I, I just, it wasn't those things that impressed me. It was the fact my mom and dad were always there. I never looked up at a sporting event that my mom and dad weren't there. I never heard my dad say, son, I got a business meeting. I can't watch your game. You know what that made me do? When my daughter, she coached at Liberty, she pitched at Liberty, and she coached for three years. In the years she was coming up, there were many times, Jeff, that I would speak for a, like a revival series, and I'd say, guys, somebody else is going to speak for me on Tuesday night. My, my daughter's got a ball game. At a large church in Texas years ago, talked to me about being their pastor. I'll never forget this. They would have, my salary would have probably tripled and all this kind of stuff, and they were telling me, and, and, and I looked at their schedule, and their schedule was so filled up with stuff. Like three out of the four Saturdays of the month, there were things I'd have to do and all this. And I, and, and I met with them, and I told them, I said, if you put everything on Sunday and Wednesday, and I'll give you one Saturday a month, I'll consider coming. And they said, we can't do that. I said, then I can't come. They looked at me, and they said, why would you turn us down? I said, because the first Tuesday night that you have a deacon's meeting, 7.30 or 7 o'clock and my daughter has a ball game at 7.30 I'm going to show up and pray and leave and go to my daughter's ball game you wouldn't do that yes I would because five years from now you're not going to remember whether I was at your deacons meeting but my daughter's going to remember whether I was at her ball game I remember when I won the mid-state region of wrestling I'll never forget this I pinned a guy that beat me the week before by one point when I pinned him, I stood up. First thing I saw was my coach running out on the mat. Then my best friend, and then my mama jumped from four rows up over everybody's head. <laughs> and ran out in the middle, grabbed hold of me, and people were like, what do you think about your mama? Come on, don't you say nothing about my mama. <laughs> you know why? Because she had long since earned the right to be there. Listen to me. What impressions are you leaving on your family? There's a book that, 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 that uh, uh, Gary Smalley wrote several years ago called The Blessing. Guys, listen to me carefully. Men, please, listen. When we started having daughters, my wife bought me these books because I didn't have a clue how to deal with daughters. And even secular psychologists will tell you that if you do not give your daughter, her blessing, she'll look for it in another man. See, we think that if we have to say we love you, that that's, that takes our manhood away. Listen, the last conversation I ever had with my father, the day he died, that morning, the last words I said to my dad was, I love you, dad. And he said, I love you too, son. My father was a big old country boy, rough as could be, he loved to hunt and fish. Some of us give more affection to our tree stands and our trucks than we do our children and our families. Men, we need to wake up. You want me to tell you what the blessing is? My wife was 33 years old when her father, who was an adulterer, he was an alcoholic, he radically got saved after having a massive stroke. He called her one day, he was reading his Bible. 
Debbie called me at work and she said, my daddy just called me. I said, really? She said, yeah, he called me. And then she started crying. She said, he told me, he says, Debbie, I just wanted you to know that I, I'm so proud of you and I love you and no man could have a greater daughter than you. And Debbie said, what did he do that for? I said, he just gave his blessing, sweetheart. My mom went to visit my grandfather when she was in her late 50s before my grandfather passed. All she ever wanted to hear was, Juanita, I'm proud of you. I love you. You know what she came home with? His checkbook. She didn't need his checkbook. She didn't need his inheritance. She needed him to look at her and say to her, Juanita, you're an amazing woman. As your father, I am so proud of you and I love you. Because I can promise you if you do not give that blessing to your daughter especially, but to your sons as well, they will look for it in someone else. What kind of impressions are we leaving for the next generation? A few years ago, I had a lady walk up to me. Her name was Jean. She said, would you please tell this every chance you get? Her husband's name was Carl. Carl was uh, one of those guys didn't get saved until his kids were in their teens. And he always thought that his kids wouldn't love him unless he, they gave, he gave him a lot of stuff. And so Carl walks in one day. I mean, his daughter is moving out. She's getting married the next week. And Carl, Carl, uh, Gene told me, said, the very last load that they were taking out of her room, they loaded it in the back of a truck. She, she was about to drive away, and she knew Carl would want to say bye to his daughter. And he, so she waited and stalled, and he never showed up. So she finally watched her daughter drive away. She said she, she, she wondered where Carl was, and she walked back in the house. The house was, all the lights were off. Walked back in this big old huge house and walked all the way back in the corner. In the back in the corner was the daughter's bedroom. There was only one light on. It was inside of this walk-in closet. And Jean, she told me, she said, when I got near the closet, I could hear this whimpering sound. It was Carl crying. He'd gone back to, to make sure that everything was out of the closet. And what he found was one stuffed animal. I don't know if he gave it to her off a business trip. I don't know if it just reminded him of his daughter. But she said he was sitting in that corner. He was crying like this, holding on to that as tight as he could. She said, I've never seen him cry like that. She said, I just sat down with him, put my arm over him, and I cried with him. She said, when he calmed down about five minutes later, I finally looked at him. I said, honey, what's wrong? Please tell me. And this is what he said. He said, my baby's gone, and I don't even know her. My baby's gone, and I don't even know her. What kind of impressions are we leaving on our families and the next generation?